Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you're having some issues, if you're struggling with happiness or achieving your goals, whether you're dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, whatever it is, BetterHelp Online Counseling is a convenient, professional, affordable option. Best of all, you don't have to wait in a waiting room or sit in traffic. Everything you share is confidential. You can change therapists if need be for free. It's easy. Best of all, you get 10% off of your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash other P-P-L. Go get 10% off, BetterHelp.com slash other P-P-L, all right? Okay. Hey, folks, how you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name's Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles, and I have on the program today Dean Kuntz, one of the best-selling authors on planet Earth. He has a new novel out on the Thomas and Mercer imprint. It is called Elsewhere. Dean Kuntz and I in conversation in just a bit. Quickly, some orders of business. I just want to remind you guys that all episodes of this program are available to you for free. More than 670 episodes, more than 670 uh, conversations with today's leading writers. If you want to visit the show online, you can do that at otherppl.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at otherppl or on Instagram at otherppl.podcast. If you want to email me, my address is letters at otherppl.com. You can let me know what you think. You can tell me a story. You can also participate in the Where I Listen project where listeners send photos of where they are in space. Where are you in space? Send a photo to letters at otherppl.com. DM the show on Twitter or Instagram. It doesn't matter. Send a selfie. I don't care. Whatever it is. So Dean Kuntz is the guest. His books have been published in 38 languages and have sold more than 500 million copies to date. 14 of them have hit number one on the New York Times list in hardcover, including The Bad Place, Hideaway, 
Relentless, and Soul Survivor. Along with that, 16 of his books have hit number one in paperback. The New York Times has called his work, quote, psychologically complex, masterly, and satisfying. And Rolling Stone has called him, quote, America's most popular suspense novelist. So without any further ado, this is my conversation with Dean Kuntz. And his latest novel is called Elsewhere. It's available now from Thomas and Mercer. This is Dean Kuntz. Well, um, novels begin in different ways. You don't always know where the idea came from. Sometimes, as with this one, it comes with characters. I wasn't thinking about the moment first. I've read novels about it. I started out in science fiction when I was a puppy and uh, have written in that field and then subsequently ditched all those books and took them out of print because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, but I'd read stories like that. I never thought I'd write one. Uh, and then one day I was doing something else altogether and not trying to think of story ideas. And the idea of a father-daughter relationship popped into my head and I could see these two characters, Jeffrey and Jeffy and his daughter, Amity. And that was where the novel began. But then I thought, what is the novel about? And and I had his wife have walked out on him seven years before and disappeared, and the daughter missing a mother, the husband missing a wife of love. And I, that's when just, I can't explain it, that's when the whole idea of, you know, if you can't find it in this world, maybe in a parallel world, she still exists and she hasn't married and she could fall in love with her husband and daughter, which was such a creepy idea. But it appealed to me because I don't like to write novels of science fiction ideas that are totally science fictional. I like to ground them in our world and relationships and in all those things that make fiction exciting for me. So it began out of that, not out of any research I've done about multiverses, but I've been a reader of quantum mechanics and modern physics and all its permutations for 40, 50 years. Um, that's one of the benefits about getting old. You get a lot of background. Uh, and uh, so it immediately came to me that that was an element of this story. How that would be used and where, where it would be going isn't anything I thought out. That's where the characters. Okay. So that, 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 was, that was kind of, uh, you know, you're, you're getting to my next question in that as I was reading your book, I was thinking of how complicated it is to manage plot. Um, you know, it's complicated to manage plot no matter what, but when you're dealing with parallel, you know, parallel universes and multiple versions of characters and crisscrossing all of these different worlds, I could imagine how that could become unwieldy. And I was going to ask you if you outline, it doesn't sound like you do, or if you had to create some sort of wall chart to keep track of all these different worlds and versions. Uh, no, actually, uh, I consider this a relatively simple novel. Uh, novels like From the Corner Desire, One Door Away from Neighborhood, which cast multiple plot lines, and I never use outlines. So I've become used to managing a large cast of characters. This is a smaller cast of characters. And I was concerned that readers not become confused. I didn't want them saying, wait a minute, this, that, or the other. So then it became, how do you describe this? How do you convey the characters through all of this? and make it as simple and straightforward as you possibly can. 
Uh, and that's where the key to everything came into the story. Uh, the uh, two characters early on, this homeless man lives in the canyon above their house in a tent, keeps coming to sit on the porch with Jeffy, the father. And he's a very personable guy and uh, very erudite. And one night he shows up in the porch with a little gift box wrapped. It's an old beaten up box tied with string and gives it to Jeffy. And never before has seemed like a crazy homeless guy, but suddenly he does because he says to Jeffy, this could change the world. Never open it, hide it. People would be looking for it. They're looking for me. It costs $76 billion to me. Um, and uh, if I'm not back in the year, put it in a, a drum full of concrete and sink it in the ocean at at least a thousand feet. And he seems so crazy that Jeffy says, oh, of course, and I'll take it. And however, the next morning, all these essential FBI agents show up looking for this guy, this homeless man. Jeffy suddenly realizes he's got a device. He doesn't know what it does. And that device is something that um, it's not quite what Hitchcock called a MacGuffin, but it's sort of that thing that propels the story. And you'll invent it, and it's not important how it came to be. What's important is what eventuates after the use of that device or after the introduction of that MacGuffin. One thing it did for me was made, made it able to regularize these two different worlds and move in and out of. And hopefully, readers would want to come out with views. And so far, no one in my publishing life has, at least. I don't think readers really. Well, listen, if I was able to follow it, then I think you're going to be fine because I'm on the low end of uh, being <laughs> able to, to track complicated plots. But um, when you talk about. Um, you know, working on a book like this, not working from an outline and conceiving of it, I, I think you said primarily from the perspective of character. Is that a through line across all of your books? Do they usually start the same way? Do you have character in mind first or does it vary? Uh, it does vary a little bit, but I would say predominantly character comes first. Uh, once in a while, you get a premise, an idea, and you're saying, wow, there's a story. But then immediately, who are the characters that carry that story forward? And that depends on another issue. When you come up with a story idea, it, it usually, you have to next address, what are the themes of that story? What is the story about other than plot? What does the story have to say about what philosophical issues, or psychological issues? Uh, and then, what kind of characters are most likely be able convey those themes without shoving them in the reader's face. And so characters are either at the beginning of it or the very second step. Um, or sometimes I wrote a series of eight novels. I've never done that, that many novels with one character, other character, with character named Ob Thomas. And Ob came to me, I was working on another novel. I wasn't thinking about anything else. And in my head came the line, my name is Ob Thomas, I live an unusual life. I never write by hand. I had a legal pad beside me because I make notes of don't forget to go back and cover this or some other kind of thing. Instead, I started writing this. My name is Ad Thomas. I need an unusual life. And the next thing I know, I had written 30 some pages, which was the first chapter of the book in longhand, which I had never done before since. And it was that character who felt almost channeled to me. 
I didn't know what his story was, where it went, but I couldn't wait to get back. That's a book that starts with character and everything else falls in. Uh, so those are the best. I think if a character is charismatic and has depth, uh, he can carry almost any story. But even the greatest story can fall flat if there isn't a character in the hero that. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So I think for listeners, you know, a lot of listeners probably share the general, um, like when you say the name Dean Koontz, I think people just, you know, immediately I see your book. Uh, in bookstores, I see it in the airport. I see it everywhere. You know, your books have a, uh, um, I don't know, there's kind of a, an ever presence to them, but it wasn't always this way. Um, I think they've sold upwards of 500 million copies, which is an, you know, kind of a, a mind blowing number. And that differentiates you from the, the typical author that I speak with on this show. You know, it's hard to sell books, uh, especially at that uh, level. And I'm interested to hear you talk about how it happened. Um, if you have, if you have thoughts on that, like why you think your books connect so, so widely with so many different readers. Uh, can you speak to that? I'm someday going to write an entire memoir about this career because it's been so freaky. Uh, from the outside, it looks like this smooth curve just accelerated and went a great distance. It was never a smooth curve. Uh, when I was, I started out not knowing what I was doing gradually, but that's what I said earlier. I kept a lot of early books out of print. Then when I started to understand what I was doing, I found out it was something that nobody was publishing. Back in those days, uh, nobody crossed genres. Nobody did mashups. Uh, but my books would have suspense, sometimes an element of science fiction, they would have a love story. They would bring genres together. Uh, somebody said I invented the cross-genre novel, and he's not in an institution, so he might be correct. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't set out to do it. Um, it's just that I'm a reader who reads in every genre, and I always think literary fiction is just another genre. And when you read in every genre, you kind of want to write in every genre, because all of them have something to bring to the table. Uh, but when I first was doing this, resistance was amazing. 
I was told I couldn't do it. I was told it wouldn't sell. I was rejected even after it sold. Uh, and after I had a book uh, that had sold a million copies in paperback, I was told I couldn't do anything different on the next book because now that that had happened, I had to write the same kind of book every time. I have a very low boredom control. I can't write the same book every time. I like to move around. I like to change up. I think readers like that too. I don't think publishers have this idea that you wrote one novel about a bricklayer, you have to do 40 novels about a bricklayer. Uh, they want to package it and sell it the same way every time. Well, the problem is, I don't think that's what readers come to. They don't come to it because there's a bricklayer. They come to it because they hear a voice that they can resonate with, and that's the author's voice. And if you can have that same kind of feel book to book. Readers would go with you uh, to all kinds of change-ups, but over the years, I had situations where a publisher once told me a book called Lightning. I delivered it. She's a very smart publisher, very refused to publish the book after Watchers, the book before it had been a New York Times bestseller. She said, this book destroy your career because the girl in it is a child for the first 25% of the novel. That makes it a young adult novel, even though she grows up and becomes an adult. And my argument was, well, Oliver Twist isn't a young adult novel. <laughs> Oliver is a child. Uh, and it didn't matter that there was this resistance. It was an argument for six months. I was told, put it on a shelf for five to seven to seven years, is what she said. And then we can publish it because it won't screw up your career. Uh, and I felt the book would heal people and I insisted it be published as the next book. It was with very little support, but it sold and sold and sold. And the very book after it became number one. So that sort of validated it, I thought. But the book after it was very different. And I was told, no, you need to write something like a lightning. That is the kind of pressure you get throughout a career. I think a lot of young writers fold on it. They just don't. They don't think if they stand up against that kind of pressure, it can work. But it can, because the only thing you have to tell us who you are is what's different about you. Otherwise, you become like everybody else. And it's the key thing to a career, I think, that lasts, is when you find the voice that is yours and resonates with the audience, for God's sakes, don't throw them aside. But don't imitate it endlessly. Use it, develop it, and you'll find out in spite of the advice you get from publishers, agents, a lot of people, uh, it will work. And I think you see that in other writers. So do you think that, like when you talk about how it works and that readers will kind of go along with you for the ride, what they're following is this sense, like I, I guess I'm kind of speaking from my own experience as a reader where I like to have that feeling of uh, of detecting the author behind the work, developing a bond almost with the creator on the other side of the story and feeling their presence somehow through the narrative. Um, even if the, the narrative from book to book, there's wild disparity between them. Uh, is that what you're, is that what you mean? Yes. It's, it, it's, you're speaking. Well, I was a kid in a very poor household. Uh, we never knew if we had a roof over our hand the next day. 
My dad was a violent alcoholic. He had 44 jobs in 34 years. And he punched out the boss a lot, which doesn't get you advancement in your career. Uh, <laughs> I've never tried it, so I, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't. And uh, uh, it was the only thing that I could escape that house with was books. And so I became a reader at a very young age. And it wasn't just that I escaped. It was those books showed me that other people lived different lives than we did. And that other homes weren't as dark when the door closed as ours was. And that was just a great thing to see and learn when I was a kid. Uh, and what I do is that one thing I think works, since that's what we're talking about, is I am an optimist that comes through the books. The books are dark, some of them. Some of them are comic novels with suspense, like Life Expectancy. Others of them are darker, like Devoe, um, but also still have a believer in But in the end, all of them are optimistic. I'm not a Pollyanna. I, I absolutely understand the existence of evil in the world, and I know it's real. But on the other hand, I think human beings can overcome almost any challenge if they want to. And that's embedded in the books because it's my view of life and I can't get around it. I cannot write the zombie apocalypse novel because I just don't believe in that. Uh, and that, by that I mean that I not just don't believe in zombies, but I just don't believe the world falls apart that way. I think cool. And that comes through in the novels. And I've been around so long and I've learned that when I look at my mail, there will always be letters every week from people who say, and, and it moves you, that your book saved my life. I grew up in this house. And they may not know how I grew up, but the book resonated with them the way the authors who saved me resonated. And then I'll get letters from people saying, I lost my way on drugs. I did this, I did that. I get letters from people who went to prison are now on the right path. And they say it was these books had a big influence on me. I don't set out to do that, but I understand what they mean because it happened to me as a kid. Uh, other writers showed me the way. So I think when you have optimism in a time when everyone's a cynicist, it's very full of cynicism and negativity. And you read a book that, while dark, maybe, while exciting, maybe, is nevertheless saying life is not bad. Life is good, and it is to find yourself through the troubles of it. That brings people along with you. In my experience, that may be a fundamental thing that has kept people coming. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I, I think that, especially from a, uh, a sales standpoint, you know, connecting with a wide readership, but also developing devoted fans who follow you from book to book. If what you're delivering to people is darkness and hopelessness <laughs> it's going to be a hard sell i don't know i think your audience is going to narrow significantly well there are writers who deliver darkness especially they can be pretty successful but the difference is somebody just asked me a question in an interview uh, how do you have such a long career i mean you've been around decades that's almost as long as the mastodons have been up here <laughs> and uh, and it's an amazement to me. I mean, my wife and I, when I wanted to go full-time and I wasn't earning enough money to go full-time, she said, I'll support you for five years. You can't make any five-year you never make it. I tried to negotiate up to seven, but she's Sicilian blood. 
She always wins negotiation. And uh, so in five years, it actually started to happen. But when we had that moment of saying, this is what we're going to try to build together, our goal was to make $25,000 a year, which in those days probably equal 60000 a day. And uh, that was all that we had in mind. So it isn't something that I thought you set out make people want to come back. That I don't know that you can do. But by not being endlessly negative and not being nihilistic, uh, which a lot of fiction is these days, I think that's what accounts for so many decades of continued sales. And I find myself at this age when everybody retired 10 years ago, I'm still having fun. I'm still writing novels. Some critics are saying they're better than some anything I've written in a long time. And I'm having fun. Uh, and I think that is something because the relationship with the readers uh, pulls me along. It's a two-way street. If my books help them, they help me. And uh, it, it gives my life purpose. So that's a great thing. So what, what do you attribute your sense of hopefulness to? Is it innate? Is it hard won? Is it an outgrowth of having grown up in a difficult environment as a child? Um, you know, because you see, like, you know, you can see people go one way or the other when they grow up in circumstances like you described. Like, it doesn't always turn out so well. Um, how did it work for you? I, you know, I've spent a long time wondering about that. Uh, I think to some degree that there is a I have an innate optimism. Uh, I must because I've never fully lost it. There are times in your life where you start to, to wonder, but then my optimism always came back. Uh, uh, my attitude, uh, when I was written, when I first ever talked about my father, I had been a published writer for 25 years before I ever started talking about it because I really don't believe in selling your past as a part of who you are or something. But I actually did once an interview, and I was stunned at the response. I mean, we got thousands of letters from people who grew up in households of alcoholics whose life was, to one extent or another, crippled by that. And I, I found I had to answer all of them uh, because I, I identified with their struggle. And it made me think about it in ways I hadn't. And I came down to something that kind of surprised me. I said, um, you know, here's the essence of it. Uh, if you let this person or persons that you were unfortunate, my mom was a great person, but she was very ill most of her life and not strong enough for the situation she was in. And uh, if you have somebody like my father in your life, or God forbid, two parents who have these kind of problems, uh, what they're really doing is they've screwed up their own lives. Now they're trying to screw up yours. Uh, and if you let that happen, they win. Do you really want these sons of bitches to win? Uh, and that had more than that. And almost anything else I started saying, they hadn't thought of it that way. They hadn't thought that they were allowing themselves to be victimized long after the parents were gone or not fundamentally in their life anymore. Uh, and this applies not just to parents, it's to anybody who screws up your life or tries to. And uh, I think that attitude, not dragging me down to your level, one way or another, I'm not going to be 
what you are uh, makes a big difference. I don't know how hard that is to do. For me, it was easy because I, I certainly didn't want to be poor all my life, and I didn't want to be an alcoholic who had no control of his life. His wife and his child had to go to bars at two in the morning to pick him up because he was drunk on the floor. Uh, I didn't want that kind of life, uh, and therefore that meant I've often said this too, whenever I had to make a decision, I sometimes would think, okay, should I do this, should I do that? If I did what my father wouldn't have done, I would be okay. Uh, so sometimes I say, I might have not had the career I had if I hadn't had the father I had, because he gave me this drive not to be in that kind of situation. Did it, and, and and you said that came to you very easily, and it came to you at a young age. Like you made a determination at a young age to follow a different path. And did you ever come close? Like have like have you ever had a drink in your life? I would imagine. Oh yes, I yeah. like good red wine. Yes. Oh, you do. Okay, but I know where the limit is. Uh, and, well, most times, but uh, if it's Camus Cabernet, I might have an extra glass. But uh, no, I don't restrict my enjoyment of life because of that. And uh, to take this one step further, uh, which may be of interest or not, but may be helpful to somebody or not, there came a moment where my wife and I moved to California, and my father was in Pennsylvania. And uh, it was the first time in my life that we had any sense of being free, uh, because he could show up at your doorstep pounding on it, drunk, and you'd have to deal with it. Uh, but 3,000 miles started to separate us from that. And then he became totally destitute, and there's no way to send him money because he would spend it one night buying drinks for everybody in the bar. So we had to move him. We had two choices, ignore this uh, and take no responsibility. But we couldn't because that was what my father had done, take no responsibility for his family all his life. So we moved him to the West, got him an apartment, took care of his bill because we were able to do that by that time. And he was, uh, some people had told us he only had a year to live. Well, it turned out he had 14 years. <laughs> and my wife was a saint taking care of them at that time. Uh, but I learned to manage my father. But here was the bigger thing I learned. And this might be helpful for people here. For the very long time in those 14 I would say for 10 of them. I kept thinking, well, now I'm an adult. Now I've got my head together better because I did screw up a lot when I was in my early 20s, mid 20s, late 20s. I think most people screw up a lot then because your brain is still developing. Uh, and, uh, but now here my father comes out I'm in my 30s. Uh, uh, I know what life is about and how I can handle this. And to an extent, yes, he could handle it. Uh, but he tried everything to sort of break us up. To uh, he ended up becoming uh, increasingly psychotic. He ended up in a psych ward twice. Uh, and in the course of that, the thing that I learned was you have an illusion. I think a lot of people that if they grew up in this kind of background with a parent or parents like this, you spend your life thinking, uh, a lot, large part of your life, if I could just understand, 
and if they could just understand me, we will have this moment where we understand each other and we'll forgive each other and we'll go on in a different way. Doesn't happen. What I saw in 10 years was who that person is and has been all those years isn't going to change. It's you who think there will be a moment where I understand them and where they understand me. And after about 10 years of supporting them here in California, I realized that moment is never going to come. And that was a liberating moment because I stopped wishing for it. And then it was just a thing about managing the relationship. And you put so much energy into wishing for that thing that isn't ever going to come. That it's better to reach that point of understanding earlier than later. And I think that could help people come from that kind of environment. Did you, and you can't, it sounds like you came to that realization. It was a hard one realization after a long period of time on your own. You didn't do like Al-Anon or anything like that. Did you have like any community support? No, I, 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 I'm wary of those kind of things uh, and how they can turn into a cult. Not Al-Anon, Anonymous, but there's all kinds of things. And, and uh, I didn't have any of that. It was a funny moment was first time I had a book was break, going to break on the bestseller list, or maybe the second. Uh, People Magazine did a profile, and it was in the days when they weren't little bitty pieces, but long. And after they did the interview, they sent a photographer, uh, Jimmy Pugh, uh, and, was, and he was a very personal guy. They came, he was there for two, or three, two and a half days, I think. First day, we spent about two hours of Jim trying to photograph me. And I thought it was going swimmingly. And at one moment, Jim stopped it and he said, uh, can we take a break? And I said, sure. I, I've never been photographed for a national magazine before. So I had no idea whether this was the moment or not. And I said, sure. And I had something called the drink. And he sat down. And Jim looked at me and said, let me tell you something about yourself. Now, I had never spoken publicly about my childhood. He said, one or both of your parents was an alcoholic, and one or both of your parents was violent. And I looked at him with absolute astonishment, and I said, how can you know that? And he says, because you act like a child of an alcoholic. You want to control everything, because in childhood, you have no control. And you said to yourself at one point, when I grow up, I'm going to control everything. I'm not going to be a victim and have no control. Now, I he said, you're trying to control every shot I do. But he said, in the nicest way, you know, you're just being very sweet about it, but you're trying to control me. And he said, I'm good at what I do, just relax. Well, Jim apparently had an alcohol, like one or more alcohol, and, uh, and understood all of this. And that was kind of an eye-opening moment, too. But your shape in ways you don't realize you are and drives you toward behavior you don't realize you're doing. Yeah, I mean, who needs who needs a shrink when the People magazine photographer <laughs> can just come over and <laughs> sum you up in five minutes, right? Yeah, and you realize he's right as the end of analysis. Wow, okay. Good. Yeah, because that was kind of my next question. Um, you know, it seems like you did a lot of this work on your own. You know, you sorted it out by reading, I would imagine, because that's what writerly people tend to do and thinking on it and hanging out with people magazine photographers. Is that <laughs> accurate? 
pretty much, but also it's the experience of, in some ways I say that, that those 14 years that we had to have bring my father out here supporting a caravan were beneficial. It was a nightmare to some extent, it was beneficial in other ways. And uh, it ultimately made an attempt on my life with a knife in front of a lot of witnesses. Uh, and he had had a stroke. Uh, and he came out of the stroke. Uh, this was after he had been uh, twice, uh, once uh, gone through a hospitalization, psychiatric hospital, and been diagnosed as borderline schizophrenic tendencies to violence, complicated by alcoholism, not a good combination. And that was several years before. So that, that was something that guided how he managed. Uh, but then he became increasingly violent. And he had another episode of violence in a neighbor. And he had to be, he had to say, okay, we have to find some way to contain this because I can't be responsible for anything he does to other people. Uh, I can take a risk, but I can't risk to do harm somebody uh, uh, other than me. And we were able to put it into an assisted living. It, where they were willing to take somebody who had had psychiatric problems but was on antipsychotic medication. He had his own little sweet, you know, uh, food was good, and it was close enough so he could go visit him almost every day. And then, after about a year, what no one realized was happening, he was developing, uh, I'm trying to think what it's called, essentially, immunity to that medication, and he was drifting back. Of the violence in the couple of little episodes. And then I came to visit him at one point, and he had a, a fish filling knife uh, that he had hung like a loser. And uh, they chose to try to use it on me after, uh, in the presence of a lot of other people. And the police were called, and he ended up again in the psychiatric ward. Uh, going through all of that sounds like something you don't wish anyone to do. But on the other hand, it finally led my understanding I mentioned earlier. There is no way to change this. This is what it is. And the sooner I could have realized that, the happier my life would have been. Uh, but if we hadn't brought in West, and I hadn't had all of those 14 years leading to that moment, I might never have reached that apotheosis. I might, he might have died, and I would still be saying, what did I do that caused this? Because children of alcoholics tend to blame themselves for everything. And of course it was nothing. Well, I, uh, I guess I wanted to ask, um, with respect to, you know, coming to this understanding and doing all this work, um, with your father late in his life, which you didn't have to do. Um, there's something really noble about the fact that you took care of him, despite all that he put you through. And that you gave him a, you know, you, at least you tried to give him a dignified end to his life um, and had compassion for him because, you know, schizophrenia, alcoholism, he had it, you know, he was sick. Um, you know, he wasn't innately, I don't think he was an innately bad man. I don't think you would say that. Um, and when I read about stories like this or hear about stories like this with parents uh, in particular, and especially as they get up in age and towards the end of their lives, there is often 
um, a period, it could be brief, but a period at which there's sobriety and maybe some flash of clarity. Um, did you ever get there with him? Were there ever moments where you were able to communicate as people without that shroud of addiction between you? No. Uh, uh, I remember maybe once where we just, not as deep as we're going here, lightly touched on it. And uh, somebody said, well, is there ever a moment with your father that you remember uh, as uplifting or wonderful or heartening? And I, I can't think of one. I asked my wife, who understood him better than I did from the time we were married. And we could together not think of a moment that ever went well. You would take him out on Father's Day. And uh, you'd go to a restaurant. And you'd be happy. The conversation was always strange. But you would still go through the conversation. And uh, I would get up to these facilities and come back out of the men's room to hear this shouting voice. I would know it was my father. And he'd be shouting at Jurgen and accusing her of one thing or another. And you'd have to go back and say the whole restaurant would be in a state of alarm. And you'd have to say to the waitress, we have to leave now, please check. And, uh, and that was the extreme examples. And there were subtler ones. He was always trying to get between you and anyone else. And uh, no, in the end, uh, it, it, was, it was very sad because you don't want to have to say about a parent. There was never a moment in our relationship where we were father and son. Uh, it was something strange and different, and, um, sadder than that. But that's what it was, and I can't believe myself. And what about your mom? You said your mom, um, that, that the experience of growing up in this environment was, like she was a very sweet woman, but it was an overwhelming set of circumstances for her. My mom was a great person, but she had a lot of illness in her life. Uh, she, was, she was quite pretty. And uh, I always wondered how she ended up with my father, uh, because she was bright. She was, uh, uh, had various talents. Uh, she was, everybody loved her, everybody called her mom. Uh, and when she was in that relationship, however, you know, it, it was the day when nobody considered divorce, or nobody in our family would have considered it. Uh, and then she had a great deal of illness. Uh, she had high blood pressure, extreme high blood pressure. There was nothing to be done for her. Uh, she had an experimental operation where they cut certain nerves links at the spine, thinking it would bring blood pressure down, but it had nothing. Um, when she was going through that, I had to meet with somebody. I was about three or four years old. My father was incapable of caring. Uh, so I went to live with a friend of mine. Uh, and uh, that was the first place I ever met with one of his books. And this woman was, was Louise Kinsey. And every night she would give me an ice cream soda while I sat up in bed. And she would read a story to me. And many years later, I came back to believe that was where I started to associate storytelling or books with peace and escape. And uh, I th- have that, I-, I think I have heard that. But my mom, uh, she, I think she resigned herself to that life. 
and knew that, and she had the idea that the best she could do was slog through it. I mean, they both came through the Great Depression. People had a very different attitude then. Uh, they didn't expect much, and they, they were afraid of change because change could lead to destitution. Uh, and I think that guided life in their life. Mm. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the earliest years of your career. Um, I want to say you went to a, you went to a small college in Pennsylvania. I'm, is it Shippensburg? Shippensburg. And at that point, were you thinking about being a writer? Like when did it, when did it begin for you? And can you talk about your earliest forays into writing fiction? Strangely enough, I was eight years old, writing little stories on tablet paper, drawing the covers stapling the side and peddling them to relatives from the middle. Uh, so I was publisher, writer, agent, uh, bookseller. Um, and I don't know where that came from, but then when I got into high school, it was the first time they had started separating students by college bound and trade school and that kind of direction. Uh, because it's slotting people before they probably should be slotted. But I ended up in advanced classes in uh, high school. And I had this, it was it was a fairly big school, but the staff was smaller. So I had the same woman as an English teacher to ninth, tenth woman and twelfth grade. Her name was Winona Garbrick, and she had been a whack in World War II. She was the sweetest woman, but everyone was terrified of her because she had a no-nonsense disciplinarian way about it. <laughs> Excuse me. And she encouraged me in writing uh, because of things I wrote in class. And when I got accepted at Shipman's, uh, she came up to me in the hall one day. And I've talked about this before, but uh, it was between classes and the students were in the hallways at their lockers. And she came into the far end of the hall and yelled, Coons! And even big football players were afraid of this little woman. And they, everyone just and it was like a scene out of high noon with uh, just two of us in the hallway. And she came up to me, pointing at me and said, I hear you've been accepted at Shippensburg. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she got close to me and started poking her finger in my forehead with every word. She said, I understand you are majoring in history. I said, yes. And she said, you're, she didn't use the word slacker. That probably didn't even exist then. She, let's say she said lazy. I know you, you're lazy, you always do what's easiest for you, and you like history, so you do the easy thing, but you have writing ability, you should be majoring in English. And I was so impressed that somebody cared anything about me that way, that I changed my major. So that was the first step. And when I was a senior in college, I had a professor submit some of my writing to, at that time, the Atlantic Monthly College Writing Competition every year, and a short story by one of Pops. And that made me a star in my senior year. Uh, and after that is when I started. It wasn't really then, but all you got from Atlantic Monthly was a nice booklet with your story in it, a little award certificate. But I turned around and submitted the story she was called The Kittens, to a magazine, and they paid me $50 for it while I was still a senior in college. And $50 to me was a fortune at that time. And that's when I began to say, I like doing this, and look, you can make $50. And 
it never occurred to me you could make a lot more, but that was enough at the time. So that's sort of where it all started. And for somebody who's had as much um, financial success as an author and who has sold as many copies as you have, I think maybe there's a temptation to believe that you have some insight into the marketplace that most people don't have, or that you have investigated this or done research into it. Is there any truth to that? Or is it mostly just intuition? Are you just worrying about the creative side and the, the, you know, the big success financially has come as a, as like a happy byproduct of that? It is so complicated, Brad. I, that we could spend an hour on that, but let me do is the same thing. To some extent, I was different than other writers. I was curious about how much it cost to manufacture and bind and put together a paperback. Back in the day, many, many years ago, I found out it was 28 cents. The book was selling at that time for like $7. And the publisher was giving a 50% discount, $48 actually. So publishers taking back $4. It cost them 28 cents to manufacture it. If they're publishing it in the units of a million, it's below 28 cents. So I suddenly saw there was this huge profit margin in this business. And that made me understand that what I was getting was below what I should be getting. But I had an agent at that time who was working more for the publisher than for me. And I had to learn everything. I had to go out and find out what writers at my level were getting. And you can't go out to people you don't know and say, how much are you going to pay? What are the terms in your contract? But I had a couple of people I knew just a little bit well enough, like Jonathan Kellerman, that uh, I could go to and say, I, I'm wondering. And we fed each other information. I had to fire that agent because the agent was not right. Uh, and so over the years, I kind of thought I knew a lot more than I did. And I was struggling to get publishers. I never had any promotion where I would go into bookstores and I'd suddenly see a new author, in, let's say in a chain store like Barnes and Noble, and I would see behind the counter 40 copies face out of the new book. And I'd go over here and here would be a display of 12 in standing display. And over here a table with 20 copies piled up. That was never happening. And I thought, what is this? Why is this happening with other writers? And I'm selling well, but I'm getting very little co-ops or cooperative advertising, working with booksellers to pay them for displays. So how is this happening? And I was told for years and years, I couldn't get through this. I was told, well, the stores determine what they're going to do that with. You have to know say of them. In actuality, and then I began to think, well, how does that work? Because all these different outlets, from department stores to uh, bookstores to chain bookstores, why are they all promoting the same thing? Uh, surely they don't all recognize that this guy is a genius at the same time. And I noticed that right at publishers, this would keep happening. You know, often the books were not bestsellers initially, but the just pressure of that constant visibility eventually moved number of them all of them to the bestseller list in a major way. Well, many years passed, I could never get an answer to it. And then I, I made friends with uh, 
in another context altogether. Somebody who had been head of sales for a major publishing house and no longer was, was in another aspect of the business. Not the talking business. And he said to me, that's called showrooming. And the publishers decide the titles they want to showroom. They pay extra discount. They give an extra discount to the stores. And the stores agree not to return copies. So it works both ways. And I suddenly learned all the stuff I hadn't known. And I braced the publisher about this. I was told that I was wrong. This didn't exist. And how did I ever learn about it? Ultimately, they did acknowledge that it existed, but refused to do anything like that for me. Uh, I was selling well enough to make money for them without promotion. So I've never talked about this publicly, but it's been an angry point with me for a long time. Now I'm with the publisher who seems to want to increase sales, but I'm also with the publisher, and and I love the people in the Amos and Mercer. They're producing beautiful books, well-made, and and they're taking steps to expand the audience. Uh, uh, But we run into this thing with a lot of outlets who are not carrying Amazon books uh, because they consider it. But it's freed me uh, to stop worrying about a lot of things and just go with the writing. And I'm having a lot of fun in it. So I think your question was, what did I know about marketing that other people did? A little bit and later a lot. But I didn't learn about it as early as I should. And uh, I suffered a lot. I think as well as we did, as well as we've done over all those years, it pretty much just was because the audience kept coming along. And sort of, my publisher would print books to fulfill the last sales, but wouldn't go forward and press for greater sales, uh, like you wish they would. But we kept reaching up and reaching up. And uh, I have the readers to thank for that. Uh, I'm ever grateful for Well, I think the lesson that I'm hearing uh, in what you're saying is that, you know, it's wise for an author to engage with the business side of publishing. I think sometimes authors just feel like they're at a remove from it, or they just have so little interest in business. And that's why they went into the creative arts in the first place. But if this is how you plan to make your living or even part of your living, it's foolish not to investigate these things and to at least have yourself armed with information. Uh, And then beyond that, once you have some success and, this is a more specific question for you is once you've sold books, you know, book over book, you, you have built a readership and you're making a publisher money. You start to get some leverage in terms of how your deals can be structured. So on the business side of publishing in that sense, I would imagine you and your agent have done some of that through the years. You know, I, I think there's kind of a boilerplate contract that an author in an early stage of their career would get, but that does change as you have some success and hopefully as you have a good team around you and some business savvy, correct? To a degree. I've had a number of agents. Uh, the first was, well, I was nobody down and, uh, in the business. And uh, so I didn't get any kind of service. And a second agent, I loved visiting. Uh, uh, and we got along great friends, but he didn't think, he thought I would always be a business writer. He actually told me that. So stop trying to write books. You might get a larger audience. And I said, gee, I'm like 28. I, I can't see the rest of my life 
right where I am now. I got to make a change. And it was very sad. Uh, and we both, and he said to me, uh, well, you're wrong. And I would be very sad right now. But in a year, we'll come back and say I was right. And we'll be back as agent and author. That didn't happen. And I had an agent who didn't know what she was doing or did know and was not doing the right thing. I stayed there for a lot of years. We had a lot of success, but there are a lot of things wrong. Very slowly. Uh, then I had another agent who was aggressive about dealing great with that, but not great in dealing with other problems that you would have with your publisher, like jacket art and things, or they're trying to slot you into one genre and keep you there. And all those little things that come up where a good agent can step in. I became so frustrated that for 14 years, I was made. I had an entertainment law attorney that I liked to be with for a long time. And together, we just did it. But finally, here's a few years ago, he said, the business has changed so much, you can't go on being your own agent. And I recognized that was true. And I finally ended up with agents that actually care about all the little details. And I was of the opinion they didn't exist which was why I didn't want another one. But apparently we do exist. I just had to be in an advanced stage to find agents who think and feel that way. Uh, so uh, I sort of have forgotten your question, but I think, uh, I think I've sort of wondered through it. Uh, having an agent, uh, and, and writers all love their agent. And every writer I've ever known thinks their agent is the best agent there ever was. Mostly that isn't true. Uh, but uh, uh, then I actually found one uh, or two uh, represented by the partners that they had uh, It was a different world. Everything changed. Uh, uh, they, they, they don't just make the deal go away. They become interested in how everything is done throughout the process. And it is very helpful and it makes you feel uh, well supported and genuinely well supported, not just glad slapped on the back. Uh, but it's very hard for, uh, for a writer to understand what he's got, what she has got the writing. Because what you said is true. Most writers I know actually actively don't want business. Uh, they feel it's beneath them or that somehow business is selling. Uh, but in fact, you're in a business. You're in an art. You're in a craft. But business is part of it. And your art and your craft will always suffer. If a lot of your life is being mishandled in the business part. Hmm. So uh, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how you work, because you're incredibly prolific. You've published over 100 books. I think I have that number right. It's, it's, an, you know, it's in excess of 100 books over your career. And I'm wondering how. Like, are, do you have a Herculean work ethic? Are you drinking two gallons of caffeine every morning? How do, like how does it actually look? Where do you work? You said earlier that you don't tend to write longhand, except in this one case, or maybe you shifted after that. But you just talk about your process and how you get the work done and how you've managed to be so productive. Uh, it amazes me as well. And uh, uh, I I'm up in the morning at five to six o'clock. I, uh, after a shower, I feed the dog or walk the dog. With a dog, and I'm at my desk working by 6 37 o'clock. I work straight through the dinner. I, I, all 
almost never have lunch because I get fuzzy minded after lunch. Um, and I do that a minimum five days a week, usually six. When I'm at the end of the novel, I can end up running seven days a week. Uh, when you just stay with it, it's amazing uh, how productive you can be. And I, when I was young, I was stupid. It usually goes with you. And I, uh, I thought, uh, oh, there's so many tricks you learn as a writer when you got them all. And writing a novel would become easy. But what actually happens is there's an infinite number of tricks or techniques. Uh, and the more of them you learn, the more of them you think about. And where you say, well, if there's something I haven't done before, that would be interesting to try to pull off. And so each one becomes a bigger, more ambitious, and harder project than the one before. Um, and that becomes the appeal of the career, is the challenge of it, and to see whether you can pull this off. Uh, I think to be productive, you have to love the writing, not having it. I, I went many years not doing interviews, and, uh, and now I don't do, I've never done a national book tour. Uh, and uh, the longest in any sort of run I did was going up and down California for one day. Productivity, I think, has to do with the love of it, of rather than doing that and having them. And uh, also, I don't know, it's uh, the more you do, the more fluid you become. If you particularly love the language, if you want to use the language well, if you don't want to just tell a story, but you want to, want to engage the reader emotionally and all the rest of it, it becomes a challenge. But you like challenges, uh, uh, which I didn't know I did really particularly. I was something of a slacker as a kid, but as an adult, I found that I like challenges. I like to do things that I'm told I can't do or can't make pull off. That helps you be productive. Um, it, it's, it's a matter of living. Um, I used to have a lot of caffeine in my life, and then I got a bleeding ulcer and almost died. So <laughs> I lost 50% of my blood before I knew I had a bleeding ulcer. Ended up in the ICU for three days, uh, and I was told you can never have caffeine again. I was drinking 16 diet cokes a day. Uh, so that probably helped. You know, when I cut that out, which was nine years ago, I'm still producing it at the same rate. So uh, I'm not quite sure that it was key to it, but it's here maybe not. Productivity is a mystifying thing. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Henry James published 125 books. He was very prolific. He made us thought of being a very meticulous literary kind of writer, just did things very slowly. He didn't. Uh, you can't do 125 books in your lifetime. Be slow about it. Uh, so productivity doesn't mean just dashing it off. I think actually, if you do that, you become less productive because you become bored. You're doing the same thing and you're hacking it out. And there's no way to do that for 50 years. I'll be doing this full time soon for 50 per year. Uh, so you have to love it, you have to want to do it right, and that's what does it for me. So I don't mean I don't want to psychoanalyze 
but I, I remember reading something Philip Roth said, uh, or maybe I was either listening to an interview, I forget what it was, but he was talking about writers of his generation, and he might be, he's a bit older than you, uh, obviously he's no longer with us, but he was talking about writers of a certain generation who had grown up with parents who had gone through the Depression, uh, Joyce Carol Oates, John Updike, how um, hardworking they were as a result of seeing their parents struggle. Uh, like John Updike, like on his deathbed was like writing like book reviews and Joyce Carol Oates is obviously super prolific and publishes like, you know, multiple books a year and so on and so forth. Do you think that the drive that you've had throughout your career and, you know, 7am until dinner time, no lunch, that's kind of, there's a kind of austerity to that um, and a discipline to it. Do you think that that was in some way connected or that is in some way connected to the financial struggles and difficulties that you grew up around? Oh, I would say no question. Uh, when you come out of poverty, you came out of where a dollar was so important, you didn't waste, you didn't waste 50 cents. Uh, when I grew up in a house that, uh, I, I would say looking back on it, it was probably about, if it was 600 square feet, I would be surprised. It was four small rooms. Uh, we didn't have indoor plumbing from Florida's alone. Uh, we had an outhouse. We had uh, running water was in the kitchen sink. It was a hand pump because we had a well and had to work that pump to get water out of it for cooking or to drink or whatever purpose. In the cellar, it was a little shower head. The cellar was the air walls. Uh, uh, there was no foundation. It was dirt that my grandfather would frown submitted. And uh, we went down there to a uh, tub bath when I was a kid, but then we got a shower head when it was that big. Uh, and when I was 11, we finally got full of more plumbing. When you grow up like that, it, it does stay with you. And, and one of the things I can remember was saying to myself as a kid, I'm never going to live this way. I don't care if I have to rob banks. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be different than this. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm a little too spooked about robbing banks to make that my life's work. Uh, so I had to find something halfway honest and before I became a writer. Uh, but thank God I had some kind of talent. But I think everyone has a talent. That's another bugaboo of mine. I, I know so many people. I know a lot of good artists uh, who are illustrators, but also fine artists. Uh, by a lot, I mean seven, eight, or nine. That, and almost to a one, they don't want to be an artist. They want to be a writer, or they want to be a musician. But their musical talent, writing talent, isn't as good as their talent as an artist. And I've seen this in all kinds of things, where people have something that they could build into something that would be very satisfying, but they want to be something else. And if what that other thing is you want to be isn't there for you, it can be a lot of waste of time and effort. Uh, I'm lucky, or I hate to say insightful, but at some point I realized this, and because of that high school teacher and other people, that this was a talent I had, and it might be the only talent I had, and I better do something with it because there wasn't anything else that would get me out of the poverty I grew up. 
So last thing I want to touch on, uh, I promise, <laughs> uh, is faith or spirituality, which I talk about on this show more than you might expect. I'm fascinated with it. Uh, life is hard. Writing is anything's hard. Writing's hard. Um, I'm always curious how people make sense of life. And especially for somebody who is successful um, at something and seems to have it figured out at least as well as a human being can. I'm always curious to know uh, if there's any spiritual understanding that they've come to, or maybe there's none, maybe they're like a stone cold atheist, but um, like, how does that work for you? And, and has it, do you think that it's been a major factor in your ability to persevere and to overcome the challenges that you faced in your life and to have the success that you've had? I would say absolutely. I, I grew up in a, my mother took me to church every Sunday. Uh, and then when, just before I married, I converted to Catholicism, not for my wife, but because I was in college and I started to study things. I got fascinated with it. And then there was a period I fell away from faith. But what brought me back to it was I've always been a very heavy science reader. And the more I read in quantum mechanics, uh, the more I read in molecular biology, which uh, informs a lot of my books. It's where ideas for devoting um, from a quantum scientist. It's a quantum mechanics book, but don't be frightened, people. It is difficult to follow. Um, I began to really see that science, and a lot of scientists that I know will say the same thing, not always out loud, uh, but they will say it in private. Uh, the more we learn about the world and the more that quantum mechanics shows us, the more that molecular biology shows us, we're looking at something so incredibly intricate that we have no clue uh, how this came to be. And all our theories of how it came to be are childish. Uh, so I've had a lot of experiences in my life that I would say, I've talked about them, but had a number of things that were very strange that you could call synchronicity, uh, or you could say, uh, okay, that's one synchronicity, that, that I can't explain at all. And I've had several things like that. That combined with my reading in the sciences over the years has brought me back totally to the idea that life has meaning and purpose, and, and we're here for a reason. And uh, some days we can't puzzle out what that reason would be. Most days we don't have a clue. But I think a lot of it has to do with uh, love. Uh, uh, I highly recommend that if you're struggling to get meaning in life, get a good dog. Get a golden retriever. Uh, keep that dog in your house, not in your yard. Sleep with that dog. Bond with that dog. And you will have miraculous things happen. You will start to see transforming the world. The dog has a sense of endless wonder about everything and an endless joy about everything. And I would say the last almost 30 years with Golden Retriever has also been a profound thing with me about bringing me back to a sort of childish wonder about life and the sense that it has profound meaning. Yeah, no, I noticed that your author photo, you're photographed with your golden retriever. I'm going to, I'm spacing the name. I know you've had several through the years, but um, I love that because I'm a total dog person. 
I, my breed is border collies. I mean, I have a, I have a street mutt from Tijuana in the room with me here, uh, Twiggy, but I, I, my first dog was a border collie and I'm just obsessed with them. And lately I, uh, I like, I'm on Reddit. I don't know if you're familiar with Reddit, but it's like, a I don't even know how to characterize it, but it basically whatever area of interest you have, it's like a compendium. You can find all sorts of different links and, you know, people contribute to it. And there's an entire border collie feed. And I sit there just looking at photographs of these dogs. <laughs> like, like I just glaze over, I'm scrolling through. My wife is like, what are you, you're looking at the dogs again? I makes me happy. I love these dogs. I totally agree with you that, you know, I can't make sense of life in the absence of a dog. I always have to have one. Yeah. They, uh, they ground you in an amazing way. And, uh, so there's this Elsa mine is right here, right now. And, uh, uh, we're so gone on this that, uh, we eat out, uh, because my wife works much the same hours I do. Uh, uh, we eat out five nights a week and have for many years, but we won't eat out anymore if it's a place we can't take the dog. Uh, so we always eat on the patio where the dog can come. She's very well behaved, better than I am actually. And, uh, uh, she never says anything smart to the waiter. And it's, uh, uh, it's just wonderful having them with you. And, uh, and some people think, well, you're anthropomorphizing animal. You're treating it like a child. I absolutely am. But it's absolutely what they deserve. Well, there you go. That sounds like a good place to end. Dean, I'm, uh, I'm grateful to you for the time. It's wonderful to talk with you. I appreciate your candor and uh, openness in talking about your life and work. Congratulations on the publication of elsewhere i'm i'm assuming you have like four more books in the works like what's what's next next is a book called the other emily and it's uh it's different but then again it's kind of what i've just been talking about and there's a i do this series of stories for amazon original stories you can get free if you're a prime member uh, by a character who's called nameless because he doesn't know who he is and the first three have been downloaded times, and uh, so I'm writing six more of the novels, and they're novelettes, they're shorter, so that's a lot of fun. So it's keeping me out of trouble with the cops, and I've managed to do that all my life. Well, there's still time. There's still time for things to take a turn. <laughs> uh, well, listen, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you again, and I wish you well. Thank you very much. Okay, there you go, guys. That is Dean Kuntz. His new novel is called Elsewhere. It is available from Thomas and Mercer. You can find him online at deankuntz.com. You can track him down on Facebook. He's got an uh, Instagram feed. He's got a Twitter handle, at Dean Kuntz. Once again, the book is called Elsewhere. It's a novel. Go get your copy immediately, available from Thomas and Mercer. Once again, this podcast is offered freely all episodes, more than 670 and counting, are available to you for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the show and you have the means, throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Send in a photo where I listen. Hashtag where I listen. You know what I'm talking about? The Other People Podcast also has an app. It, too, is free. 
the official app of this program. Go get it wherever you get your apps. The other people with Brad List the app. It's a good app. If you want to get some other people gear, t-shirts, sweatshirts, tank tops, all are available. Just go to otherppl.com, click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar, get some apparel. They're good. They're soft. They fit well. They're not scratchy. They're good t-shirts. Get one. Why not, right? Get a tank top. (laughs) So that was cool. Talking to Dean Koontz. I don't think I've ever spoken with an author who has sold more books than Dean Koontz. I cannot imagine that I have. Next time on the program, Laura Bogart is my guest. She's an old pal from, uh, you know, like an, like an online literary pal who, you know, has been scrapping for a long time and has written a, a terrific novel. So Laura Bogart and I in conversation next time up. I'm going to try to get back to doing two a week. We'll see. I can't make any promises. Uh, new episodes every Wednesday for sure, possibly on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs>